Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so excited to have today with me Dr. Dan Dominich, the lead, the head, the, the king of all superintendents at ASA, the School Superintendent Association. Is that a good title for you, Dr. Dominich? Well, I would remove king. I don't know that superintendent would necessarily feel that the king is appropriate, but I am the executive director of ASA. The executive director of ASA. And how long have you been the executive director? I have been there 14 years. Actually, I'm, uh, I'm almost, I will complete 15 years in June. Congratulations. That's quite an accomplishment to have led the organization for 15 years. I'm sure you've seen a lot while sitting in the executive director's seat, and I'm excited to dive into that today. Sure. Absolutely. So for folks who are unfamiliar with your tenure and your background in education, give us a little bit, catch us up to speed. What led you to education and how did you wind up in the seat you're in right now? Well, it's a long history. Uh, I have been around for quite a while, but, uh, you know, I am an immigrant. My family migrated to the United States when I was nine years old from Cuba. And uh, I remember when I was 15, I was hired by a summer camp. And uh, my job was basically to uh, work with uh, newly arrived uh, children from uh, Spanish-speaking countries and, and work with them to try to get them ready for school in September. So I was very excited by that. And uh, I remember that I would put on a white shirt and a tie and, and walk and, and deal with the students as I'm the teacher, you know, and it was such a, a fulfilling job for me working with these youngsters, teaching them some keywords in English and getting them ready for a school in September. But that's when I first got a taste of uh, wanting to be a teacher. And I, I did. That's exactly what I did. I went to Hunter College uh, in New York, which is then and even today uh, recognized as a leading educator training organization. So I got my degree from Hunter, and then I started teaching in New York City. I was basically a, a New York City bilingual teacher, again, using my uh, dual language uh, skills. And I taught in New York City until I had the opportunity to apply for a position on Long Island. And that was uh, an interesting opportunity for me because I, I went to work for a BOCES, what's known as the Board of Cooperative Educational Services in New York, which is basically an intermediate school system, an education service agency. And the six years that I spent with that BOCES were just a great education for me. My job became being the innovator to travel around the country and find out where innovative ideas were being practiced and to bring those practices to uh, Nassau County on Long Island. Things like bilingual education, things like uh, Head Start programs, early childhood education, personalized learning, the open classroom. All of these were great ideas. So I did that for six years in the process of getting my doctorate from Hofstra University on Long Island. So when I did get my doctorate, I decided to apply for an assistant superintendent position. 
And I did that in a district called Deer Park on Long Island. And the int- interesting thing that uh, four years into, uh, not four years, four months into the position, the superintendent that hired me was let go. And the board began a, uh, a search, a worldwide search for uh, a replacement. I decided that uh, security for myself in a job that I had just gotten four months ago required that I apply for the position just so that I can come before the board and let them know who I was. And I, I want to continue to do what I'm doing here. And this is who I am. One of the things I brought back from uh, Nashville is a cold, I hate to say. Uh, Dr. Dan, you're, Dr. Dan <laughs> Domich, you're referring to ASA's yearly conference in Nashville, Tennessee that just closed, which was an incredible event. I know my own colleagues attended and, and hopefully that cold exits faster than the conference lasted. <laughs> I hope so. So anyway, four months into the job, I applied for this position just to let the board know who I was, ironically. And I was only 32 years old at the time. Ironically, even though there had been five candidates, experienced superintendents that were finalists and were being interviewed, I basically told them what I would do, given all of these innovative programs. You had such a good bird's eye view of what was great happening across the country. That's that's an invaluable experience. And so... They hired me. To much, be the to your surprise, much to your surprise. Shocked. I was shocked. I said, are you kidding me? That's not what I was, you know, I came here to do. That wasn't your intent wanted, at all. I just, but... to, I just wanted to keep my job. Yeah. And they made me the superintendent. And it was a great experience. I actually got to implement uh, as a superintendent all these ideas. Full day kindergarten, which back in those days was revolutionary. Early childhood centers. Right. All of these ideas uh, came into play. I was, I was in Deer Park for about three years when a, a, a neighborhood uh, district offered me the same opportunity. They recruited me to be their superintendent. That was South Huntington, Long Island. And they wanted me to do the same things. Uh, so I brought to uh, South Huntington uh, kindergarten child care, even child care I introduced in South Huntington. So it was a great experience there. And then I got the uh, job as the BOCI superintendent. So 20 years on Long Island before uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, 10th largest school district in the country, offered me the opportunity to be their superintendent. So altogether, 27 years as a superintendent. I retired from the superintendency, did a stint with McGraw-Hill Publishing for about three years, four years. And then uh, ASA recruited me for the position that I have now, which I thought I was going to do maybe for three or four years. And I've been doing now we're going on 15. Going, going, on, 15. going on 15, because I love it. I love what I do. I love representing our superintendents. I, I love to support them, particularly now in, in these times. And you're referencing, you know, in these times, and I think we'll jump right into to kind of the meat of why I was so excited to talk with you. You know, the, the national landscape in education is such that There is a lot of concern about teachers leaving the profession, but you have been quoted in talking about the same crisis that we are facing with superintendents. So, you know, there there was a Newsweek article published in in mid-December, late December, about the concern for the great exodus of superintendents. Why are we facing this crisis? Help help us kind of understand the landscape a little bit 
Um, and where, where, what are you thinking about the largest thing or the biggest things we could be paying attention to, to prevent this from becoming an actual crisis and more of just a kind of prediction of what might happen next? Well, it's a crisis already. What's happened is that the pandemic, we, we saw from the pandemic early on, the struggles uh, that superintendents were having in basically a damned if I do and damned if I don't situation. If they open schools, parents uh, were angry because they didn't want to send their kids to school because they didn't think it was safe. If they closed schools, parents were angry because they needed to go to work and they need their, a child to be in school. When masking was seen as a mitigating factor, parents wanted their kids to wear a mask. Other parents didn't want their kids to wear a mask. So here again, it's a no-win situation. Quite polarizing. And then with the vaccines, when superintendents began to offer vaccination clinics in their schools or made it easier for kids to get vaccinated, <clears throat> again, parents objected because they didn't want their children vaccinated. They were upset that the uh, uh, superintendents would uh, push that. And then most recently, you have critical race theory, where after uh, school systems adopted uh, the move towards diversity, equity, and inclusion, critical race theory became a significant backlash against that. And now we saw superintendents being fired if they were implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion in their communities and, and their board didn't want them to. So the stress on superintendents has been significant. Superintendents are being threatened. Their families are being threatened. Some of them have been physically assaulted. And so it, it's an environment where when you need police protection and your family needs police protection, it's not something that they signed up for. Stress has always been part of the job, but not your family being brought into those threats, that kind of a situation. So what we're seeing is a lot of our most capable, experienced leaders leaving the profession. A lot of them are being fired by their boards for, again, doing whatever it is that was against what the board wanted. And so we're seeing a huge turnover. The most recent survey of the top 500 school districts in the country shows a turnover rate of 37%, which is incredibly high. That's uh, it, it Most uh, states that I speak to, uh, it, it ranges, in some cases, it's still low, around 10%, which is more the, uh, the typical. But there are places where the turnover is as high as 40%. Alaska, for example, has a huge turnover. Maryland has a huge turnover. So there are a number of states that are having huge turnover. This is a crisis because at a time when school systems need that kind of experience and leadership, they're being replaced by individuals that are moving into the position that don't have that experience. And that, is, that can be a significant factor in, in a school system at a time like this when making decisions that are critical, in some cases, determining the, the lives staff or students, that they're being replaced by individuals that, that don't have that kind of experience. So I'm, I'm hearing the landscape a little bit described by you. It seems, like I said before, very polarizing and one that has caused significant concern amongst the folks holding these roles and that are exiting from these roles. What is the answer, right? Like when we, when we face these challenges as a society that are polarizing and, and our society is, is pretty 
dichotomous right now uh, more than it has ever been. How do how does ASA support its superintendents to navigate these challenges in a way that helps them remain in their roles so that schools have the strong leadership that that they need it needs? The one thing we can do that does have a direct immediate impact is to provide our, our superintendents with the opportunity to engage in uh, stress reducing workshops that we do. For example, at our conference in Nashville, in the exhibit area, we actually had a wellness center. And in that wellness center, there were puppies. You could go in there and play with a puppy. And by the way, that was the most uh, popular aspect. I understand why. I'm really upset I wasn't there for that. <clears throat> and you could, you could actually make yourself a smoothie by pedaling a bicycle, an exercise bicycle, or you could get a massage, or you could sit down with a therapist. So we're doing a lot of that for our members. We find that when we put them in groups where they're just superintendents and they feel safe and it's a safe environment, that they can let their hair down. They can talk about these issues. They can talk about the pressure that they feel, the stress that they feel. They share what they're doing to help reduce that stress. And that's been very helpful. And we're getting a lot of positive feedback for, for doing these things. The second thing is, you know, what I do now being a perfect example, uh, to spend a lot of time doing interviews uh, with the media, uh, television, print media, uh, internet, to explain uh, the situation and, and, and why these superintendents are so stressed out because they're caught in the middle of what, in essence, a no-win situation. And then the last one is, you know, how do we fix this long range? And that's going to require uh, strategies that are very different uh, from the ones that we've done before. How do you deal with a divided community? How do you get people to sit down and be reasonable and understand what, what the issues are? Uh, and that's a, that's a longer strategy that requires more training, but it, it, it basically calls for engaging the community and bringing the community members who, who have these strong feelings together and, and try to clarify. If the mitigating factors to help us deal significantly with this pandemic is first and foremost to get vaccinated. And then next to getting vaccinated, to be able to wear masks. And next to masks, you know, to keep a certain distance and to, and to look at the metrics in terms of infection rates in the community, hospitalization rates in the community as a determining factor of which one of these things is important. If everybody did that, we'd be able to get this pandemic under control students would be able to be in school as they are now. But, you know, we've seen this in the past, okay? We've already gone through this towards the end of last year and the beginning of the school year, things were looking great. Then all of a sudden we had uh, the first variant that came along, Delta, and that changed everything. Then again, by Thanksgiving, things were going great again. And then the holidays came along and Omicron came. And back it is, you know that there's gonna be another variant. And it's going to come and it's going to have an effect again. And we're going to be going through the same process. So to the extent that we can explain to people why it's so important that these things are done, that it's being done in the best interest of students and staff and a supportive community would make things go a lot smoother for everybody. It'll make a difference because this isn't going to go away. This is going to keep happening over and over again until we get to the point where the vaccinate, you know, that's how we did polio and chickenpox and measles and all of these other illnesses that we had. Nobody objected to, to having those vaccines. You couldn't go to school without having those vaccines. And 
this pandemic is more serious than any of those that we've had. And yet there's still this reluctance on the part of people to wear masks, to get vaccinated, to do the things that we know from the scientists. We know from experience. I mean, all you have to do is check the chart, the charts and see where the areas are where you have the greatest amount of hospitalizations rates and, and, and uh, infection rates. And, and they match with low vaccination rates or wearing masks. It's, it's, it's not uh, rocket science. It's just plain science. You know, Dr. Dominic, as I'm listening to you, I'm wondering, there's a theme for me that that is kind of evolving, which is how parallel some of the challenges teachers are facing to those of the superintendents, right? The, everybody at the, at the center of this circle, this co-centric circle, we have students. Everybody is in this for the students. Nobody's in teaching for the money. Right. We're, we become educators because we want to make a difference in the lives of children. Like you said, you found you put on your white shirt, you put on your tie and you loved being with kids every day. And today it feels like we've moved away from people being able to enjoy that center, that center of being able to change the lives of children. And you mentioned this opportunity to, to think about education differently. So in a world where students are at the center and we're making sure we move the needle for children, what does the long-term opportunity to redesign education look like? Let me start off by saying that as critical as the superintendent exodus happens to be, even more critical is the shortage of teachers. Because without teachers, uh, and we're seeing that happen, that schools are, are in many cases not closing not because of the pandemic, but because they don't have sufficient staff. That's a real problem. When we don't have enough teachers in the classroom to be able to support the number of students that are going to school, that's a serious matter. That's a serious concern. And teachers are under the same stress uh, situation. And teachers are leaving in droves because the stress that they're under. Because the private sector recognized that, hey, look at this. We're having all kinds of worker shortages. And we have all these wonderful people out there that are college educated, articulate, smart. Let's hire them. Let's offer them more money that they're making in the classroom without the stress factor. So we're losing teachers left and right. We see surveys that are being done by the AFT and the NEA indicating that most teachers are considering leaving by the end of the school year over 50%. That is huge. And that would be a very real problem. It would be catastrophic for our system functioning in the way that it needs to function. Totally. And so what is the solution there? Well, the solution there, obviously, is that we need to retain our teachers and we need to bring them back. By the way, there isn't a teacher shortage. There is a shortage of teachers wanting to work in the classroom. Because we've seen over the years, even before the pandemic, that the average teacher taught for five years and then left. So there are a lot of people out there that are certified to teach. So we need to bring them back into the profession. And then we also are going to have to look, and this is where the, the, the pandemic is, is necessary. You know, it's an opportunity to change. And we may very well have to change the traditional model of seeing a teacher in a classroom all day with the average of 25 students. That may not be uh, possible anymore if we don't have enough teachers for that. Arizona State University, their school of education, which is uh, one of the, it, it is the largest school of education in the country. We've been working with them because they've come across with a really great model. It's called community team teaching. And the idea here is that you create a team of individuals, starting with uh, the, the classroom aide, the teacher aide student teachers in local universities that are interested in going into teaching, beginning teachers, 
experienced teachers, and then other school personnel, like counselors and librarians and other people that are not necessarily assigned to a classroom, but can be assigned to a team. And now you change the dynamics, uh, you change the ratio. And now you can provide with fewer teachers because they're not there. You can provide instruction, personalized learning to more children in the school. So those kinds of, of radical changes to education are gonna have to be made as much as we badmouth uh, remote learning, it's here to stay. Uh, we talk about learning loss. Well, kids are not going to gain, you know, three years now of a pandemic simply by getting back to school at the same rate as they were before. They need more time on task. And the only way to do that is by providing them uh, with virtual learning out of the classroom, weekends, after school, holidays, summers, uh, that's how remote learning can become an asset uh, and a support mechanism uh, for allowing students to catch back up. So there's a lot of changes. You know, the, the, the school calendar, right? The uh, summer off calendar for, for students, we may have to abandon that. We may have to go to year-round <clears throat> instruction, which is something that we should have done for a long time. So this is an opportunity to, to make some of these radical changes that should have been made to education long ago but now the situation necessitates that these changes are made. And if not now, when? Right? Like I, I firmly agree with you on the fact that this is an opportunity. We've, we've been through a traumatic experience as a society. We've seen where cracks are widening. We've seen where students are struggling. We've seen where school leaders and superintendents and teachers are really just troubled and, and challenged. And so if not now, when we have this opportunity to rethink, well, and I think back to how you traveled the country and you saw where people were doing innovative things. Why not take some of the innovative implementations and approaches that people applied during the pandemic and bring them forward? One of the, exactly. ideas, one of the ideas I heard lately, and you just echoed it yourself that I really like is we are really stuck in 18th century pedagogy in having these structured days where kids have first period math, second period English. Why does it have to be like that? Why can't we create more flexible schedules that allow for exploration, independent exploration, building of curiosity, leverage the teachers where you need them the most? Exactly. And, and those changes would be welcome changes. One of them being that we have to give students more of a voice in deciding what they want to learn, how they want to learn it, and when they want to learn. There's nothing wrong with that. If, if, if students are motivated to learn, the teacher doesn't have to force feed information down their throat, which they're either going to ignore or forget. So if we allow students to be more engaged in how they learn, what they learn, when they learn it, that's going to make a difference. If we allow teachers uh, to become more engineers of learning than necessarily the sage on the stage. They don't have to be in front of the class lecturing every minute. They can be the directors of learning that bring about the technology, that bring about other people that could be part of this, this team to deal with issues. And that's going to be a more effective process than what we have in place today. How often do you get to travel in your current role as executive director and see the schools that that and the leaders that you support. I would love to know, just given your experience in seeing innovation around the country, what it what it feels like for you today and what you're seeing today that really inspires you. I know you mentioned ASU's community team teaching model. That seems 
very different and very inspiring. What else have you seen out there that really is just a breath of fresh air and a change from status quo? Well, prior to the pandemic, I was probably on the road on a weekly basis, and that was great. Uh, Since the pandemic, uh, that has uh, dropped considerably. It's now just beginning to pick up as schools are, are back in session. But, you know, we, we have uh, at ASA uh, a program that we just launched this school year. It's called Learning 2025. And it really is designed to bring about the kind of changes in education that we've been talking about. And we have already identified about 120 school systems around the country that are engaged in many of these ideas and many of these changes. And we're looking to use them as models for people to be able to travel to these school districts and see these things being done. Uh, to see early childhood being practiced in a very different way other than just childcare. To see personalized learning where, where students in combination with, with a teacher and the technology have the opportunity to proceed at their own pace. Imagine that, allowing students to proceed at their own pace. The students that you know, can go and move forward and don't feel that they're restrained can do so. The students that need more time to learn the subject matter so that we don't pass them by and leave them behind have that time. Uh, That's a great concept. And yet uh, it's something that we we have not done and can be done. Today it can be done and it is being done. So that's our approach. Uh, We want to create uh, these models. I I kind of subscribe to the uh, disruptive technology approach. We've seen how that works, right? I do too. Considering I work for an online education company for the past five years, I would say I'm fully in that camp as well. <laughs> so, you know, when we, I think the formula is that when you get 20 to 30% of the consumer using that product, it flips, right? That's how we got to the iPhone. That's how we've gotten to all of these technologies that we couldn't live without nowadays. Well, if we can get 20 to 30% of our school districts implementing these approaches successfully, it won't be long because before the rest of them come along. That will allow us then to to finally move into the 21st century, which education still hasn't done. I'm really holding on to this notion of being able to see model schools. And I, and again, like you said, you did that in your career when you were working at NASA in uh, at BOCES, and now you're doing it again by creating this learning in 2025 opportunity. I remember the best professional development I had as a teacher and a school leader was the ability to visit schools. I was work, I worked my whole career in New York City and Harlem and the Bronx, visit schools in the communities I worked in, outside the communities I worked in, in different states, and get the chance to see different models in action. It, it showed me what was possible because often when you read about an implementation, you, you immediately put up barriers. You think, well, the students are different than my students, or the school has different resources, or you just put up all these barriers as to why it might not work in your own community. And so having the ability to really view it and explore it and see it in action, for me, made a huge difference in my career in in opening up what would be possible for the kids that I supported. And that's, uh, Haley, is exactly the model that uh, we're implementing, that it's actionable, uh, it's visible. It's demonstrable. You can see these things being done. It's not just theory, but it's practice. Uh, and, and get other superintendents that see it and say, whoa, I want to bring that into my school districts and do that. So that's, uh, that's what our Learning 2025 initiative is about. And this is a great time. That's why we launched it. We figured, to your point, if, if not now, when? Absolutely. 
Well, I'm looking forward to exploring that a little bit because again, that's how I learn. And I, you know, as someone who's not in a school anymore or not in a classroom anymore, it's important for me to know what is happening in schools across America. Just out of pure curiosity, I like to know what's happening. I have my own kids in schools now, uh, right in the neighboring districts from where you worked on Long Island. And it's fascinating too, as a parent, your perspective changes pretty dramatically um, when you have your own kids in schools. So I'm really looking forward to diving into learning 2025 because I think that it'll help really give me some more perspective and just get a view, view vantage point of these 120 schools that are really leading on the, the innovative edge. For sure. Can I get can I get admittance into seeing what's going on there? Oh, we can we can arrange that for sure. <laughs> so, Dr. Dominich, I you know I want to just think about for you what would be a perfect scenario. We've talked a little bit about the future. We've talked a little bit about some of the challenges superintendents are facing today. What would be an ideal scenario? Is it around communication? Is it around being able to break down the barriers and the kind of opposing viewpoints between different stakeholders and schools? Like if you could remedy everything that is troubling and challenging for your school leaders right now, what, what would it be? What would it, how would you do that? What would it be that would solve them with a magic wand, solve it all? Well, the biggest problem that I think we face right now is uh, it, it's the, the diversity that exists, the animosity, the, the caustic board meetings that we see all the time, the arguments that, that, that take place, you know, the pushback against this whole issue of, of equity, that even social emotional learnings become a dirty word. That's troubling. And that's something that we need to, uh, to correct. And uh, I've seen surveys that are being done recently that basically demonstrate that if you ask the majority of people a, a question regarding the, are you against making sure that each child gets what each child needs? Everybody will say no. So that's equity, right? But people will say, well, no, not, you know, I mean, they're all for this. Nobody wants to see a child marginalized. No one wants to see a child hungry or a child sick. We're all in this together. So what is it that, that has created this divisiveness? Is it because it's, it's being politicized? And I think to some extent it is. So how do we bring people so that we have a, a, a common language and a common discourse to say, hey, what are we all for? And if we are all for this, then let's focus on what we are all for. And let's put aside our, our, our differences for the time being and pursue that. Because gradually what we'll find is the reality that we're all for the same thing more so than we are against. So that's why I, I mentioned earlier, you know, you, you look at the most recent survey of how parents feel about their school, their child attends, 76% of parents love their neighborhood school, love their teacher, love the school that their child attends. But then when you ask them, how do they feel about government education at the national level, it drops down to the 30s. So, the point is that to know your school is to love your school. And if we can start there with parents in their neighborhood, in their local community, being advocates for the kind of education that their children are getting, and then bring in to those discussions people who are outside and don't really understand it. Why are you so happy with your school? Because my child is learning. My child is being taken care of. This is great. I love it. I think that's the key, the discourse that we need to have to bring us all together. I think so often confusion is at the center of, you know, 
diametrically opposite viewpoints because not everybody always understands the perspective of others. And I love the notion that bringing people together about what unifies them, which is every student getting what they need, is a really powerful one. It is. And I think that there, there is common ground there. So that's, that's a critical area to pursue. So Dr. Dominich, one final question for you. What advice would you give an educator starting their career today? Well, first of all, I would hug them, kiss them, and say, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> we, we need you. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and make them realize, uh, as teachers do, I mean, nobody went into education to make money. Nobody went into education just to have a job. People are, have gone into education do so because they love children. And they love the ability to make a difference in the lives of children. And today, today more than ever, children need teachers that care about them and can make a difference in their lives. They need that connection. They need that lifesaver for, for a teacher to engage them and, and put an arm around them and say, how can we help you? you know, what, what's going on at home? How are you dealing with this whole situation and deal with their social and emotional needs before you jump into instruction. Because the teacher that does that, the teacher that engages that the student, the teacher that makes that student feel that they're loved, cared for, that student will perform. And that student will be successful because of that teacher. I could not agree more. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, um, I posted today on my, on my Twitter account, Education Week posted an article or wrote an article about how teachers help students during times when current events are troubling. And this morning, you know, war broke out between Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, so a lot of children are coming to school today with fear and heaviness and concern and worry. And who's at the center of that? But educators, they're the exactly. front lines yet again. They're the, <laughs> as we said, frontline workers included healthcare workers, but they also included teachers throughout this pandemic. And now with another challenge before them, we rely on teachers to be the social kind of, you know, safety net for students to make sure they feel heard and their feelings validated. And so I could not agree with you more, Dr. Dominich. As, as usual, we have educators at the very, very center of our society, making sure that our youth are protected, safe, and well. In locus parentis, that's what we refer to. The teacher is there when the parent is not. And that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to say thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Dominich. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and learn about the work you're doing and, and share with the audience the importance of so many aspects of being a superintendent, as well as how, as a society, we can move forward in the current climate we're in. And I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Haley, it's been my pleasure. I apologize for not being able to be as clear in voice as I might be otherwise, but um, I think your message was well received by the audience and well understood. So not a problem at all. Well, thank you. Thank you for everybody who joined us today. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review and share this episode. 
Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itruder.com.